Today I sat with Ambassador Joe Stafford and his wife Kathleen Stafford. This remarkable duo played pivotal roles in real-life events so significant they were transformed into the riveting narrative of the Academy Award-winning film Argo. The movie narrates the tense unfolding of a CIA operation with the daunting task of rescuing American embassy staff amidst the Iranian Revolution and the subsequent fall of the Shah. Our conversation traverses the intense atmosphere of Iran as the formidable, or notorious, Ayatollah Khomeini ascends to power. We delve into the harrowing specifics of the daring escape, unearthing the intricate maneuvers the CIA employed in collaboration with the various other embassies to facilitate their face departure from a country teetering on the brink. We also delve into the far-reaching repercussions of this single seismic event, an event that sent shockwaves of destabilization through southwestern Asia and the Arabian Peninsula. With that, please enjoy this notable bit of history with Joe and Kathleen Stafford. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have Joe and Kathleen Stafford. How are you? Very well, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, it's the first time we've had two guests in this podcast studio, so hopefully we've got all the cameras situated. It's going to work just great, uh, so we won't have to shoot this whole thing all over again. <laughs> <laughs> this, these conversations can get quite lengthy, so I uh, hope you... Uh, I got your water all buckled up. So before we get into kind of the meat of what I think we want to talk about here, um, I want to know a little bit about like how you how you met. How did you come to be in each other's companionship? We met at the University of Tennessee in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, in art history class. Mm -hmm. And um, I recognized straight away that she was an artist, <laughs> and an expert in art history. So I that one thing led to another, all sorts of uh, questions, uh, discussions. I benefited from her wisdom on art history, and uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. the rest is history. Was he history. cheating off of you? Uh <laughs> the contrary. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> uh, we met in art history, and then one day he, we, had, we were given our test back, and he said, oh, you did really well. I had an 84 or something. He said, maybe we can study together. Of course, he had a 95. Mm -hmm. And so then we did. We went to the library, and they threw us out because we were laughing. <laughs> so that was the beginning. <laughs> I see. I see. Happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And how many years has it been now? Right. Yeah, 1972. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That sounds right. 50, 51, 52. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, so um, what made you decide to go on the career path that you went on? Were you, was this something you'd been thinking about doing, going to the state department or how did you, how'd you end up there? Well, for a long time, uh, I suppose going back to high school, I had an interest in uh, living and working overseas. And uh, one of my early jobs after graduation from the University of Tennessee was to work for an export import firm um, in Italy. And that whetted my appetite further or overseas, uh, for the overseas life, and then decided that uh, diplomacy would be, uh, would be an interesting career. Um, so uh, as opposed to business overseas, doing business overseas that uh, representing the U.S. government would be particularly stimulating. So took the State Department test. In fact, took the State Department's test several times. <laughs> I just want to get it, it. perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And good enough to get an offer. Uh, and so at the time, I was studying for a doctorate in Latin American Studies at the University of Florida, but I was very happy to get uh, the call from the State Department to, uh, to sign up. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that was it, uh, the longstanding interest that I had in living overseas. And Kathleen, fortunately for me, shared that, uh, that interest and that vision. Well, 
I had been moving around. My dad was in the Air Force. He was a navigator. And and so <clears throat> we'd always moved. So I thought everybody else did until he retired when I was 12 in, a, in Crossville, Tennessee, as an air traffic controller there. So then um, Foreign Service sounded good to me, sounded mm-hmm. exciting, and I'd get to see art all over the world. And that was your real passion, so yeah. it made sense. Um, and not just... Um, the classics, I'm assuming, also modern art in their local region, whatever that looks That's like. That's right, every place, uh, tribal art, modern art, everything. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so somehow that brought you to Iran, but not immediately, right? There was a, there was one or two stopovers before there? That was the first overseas assignment. Overseas, um, I see. You know, they had the basic training that all newly minted to foreign services, foreign service officers go through, asking uh, a couple months, something like that, followed by language training to study Farsi mm-hmm. uh, before proceeding to the to the post. Um, so, uh, but that was our. How, yeah, the how first. long did that take to learn Farsi? Six months. Really? That doesn't seven seem seven hours like, a day. That doesn't seem that long. I mean, I'm sure that you're <clears throat> fully immersed, so that <laughs> helps. But uh, but that still, that doesn't seem that very very long. Oh, I think for for new officers, there's a limit on them extent of the language training so it might have been a, a year say because uh, it's considered a hard language um, the, but for new officers it was thought that six months would be enough to get us um, able to survive uh, ask basic questions on the visa line which is where we worked um, so and it, they also allowed uh, spouses to take the classes too that makes sense and so um I did that, and that was, uh, I'm sure glad I did, because then when we finally, um, we didn't know if, we thought the embassy in Iran was opening up, and that uh, other family members were going to be able to come eventually, and then they decided only working spouses could go. So Cora, the other the other classmate, and uh, Joe's classmate too, um, <clears throat> was also taking Farsi. We were in the same Farsi class, so... Mm. Then we were able, we took the consular course as well. That was also something they had just opened up to spouses. And so we were able to go to Iran. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with the uh, expectation that you would do more than just be a spouse, you would actually help out somehow? Right. We would work on that. We would um, interview some of the 40,000 people who were waiting for an interview. Oh, wow. So they gave you a job. Wow. It's called a pit position, <laughs> part time something or other, and um, and I'm sure you pick up the language even faster in that position, right? You're just learning, you know, certain hello- phrases, yeah, certain phrases like in customs, like customary hellos and goodbyes and that kind of stuff that are maybe a little nuanced. Um, that's kind of kind of interesting. So, um, you were in your late twenties at this point. Is that about right? I was 29, I think 28. Yeah. And so you hadn't had a ton of world experience going into this. This is, this was really, this is your first kind of over, um, I mean, except for your, your childhood. Right. But other than that, really, apart from the time in, uh, in Rome, we were together, uh, in Rome, I was working f- in Italy. I was working for an export import company. So we did that for a year and a half. Okay, So at least you had some, okay. You had some outside the United States experience because this is, this isn't like Rome. I don't know. It's a very yeah, <laughs> different context. Right. This feels quite a bit different. Um, so, uh, can you give us a, some context about what Iran was like when, sort of, before you got there and as you got there? Like, what was the climate? Like, what was going on in Iran? Like, what what was the 
what was sort of the world like? If I had read Time Magazine, what would have it said it was going on at that time? It was a time of um, real effervescence, uh, churning in Iranian society. The long-standing ruler of Iran, the Shah of Iran, had uh, fled the country early in 1979 following months of mass demonstrations, protests, some of them quite bloody. Uh, and uh, so his uh, reign finally came to an end. As I say, he fled, uh, fled the country. Khomeini, the uh, Islamic um, uh, cleric, returned to um, Iran after many years of uh, exile in, uh, in France, establishing what would uh, come to be known as the Islamic Republic of, uh, of Iran. But it was a revolutionary situation um, because uh, you had uh, forces that were opposed to uh, Khomeini uh, and to the idea of the Islamic Republic, secular forces, leftist forces, communists. And so... Um, there were street battles. There, uh, there was uh, there was violence um, that accompanied uh, the fall of the, the Shah and the arrival of Khomeini. In subsequent months, uh, the um, as the uh, Khomeini and his ruling coalition uh, solidified uh, their rule, um, the uh, it was clear that the United States was going to have to. Uh, just to a new reality, um, Iran was uh, remained a very important uh, country, but the, Khomeini was not the Shah. Khomeini established uh, um, a uh, a government that seemed moderate, that had Western-educated uh, people um, in uh, uh, officially or formally in charge, prime minister, foreign minister, and others. But he was the real power behind the scenes. In February of um, in 1979, the embassy uh, was assaulted the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Valentine's the, Day. Yeah, this is not something people really talk about very much. There was this is the second time you <laughs> guys were involved with this, but there's this whole other time. <laughs> That's, That's, uh, before we got there. Yeah, before you got there. So you knew, just to, just to, not to interrupt here, but you knew that this was a dangerous, hostile situation at that point. It had been just a handful of years earlier, right? I mean, you weren't you weren't going in totally naive that this was going to be a picnic. That's right. The fact that family members were not uh, authorized to be at the post with a couple of exceptions, my wife and the other, other colleague was an indication right there. Um, one of the earliest uh, tasks we had on arriving there um, in, uh, in September of 1979 was to receive a briefing on all the security uh, arrangements. Uh, the embassy was nicknamed Fort Apache because it had state-of-the-art uh, at the time uh, security uh, security arrangements. So yeah, it was clear that we were in a potentially very volatile situation um, in a uh, in some ways still a revolutionary uh, situation. Although uh, the Khomeini was uh, and his uh, and his government were strengthening day by day their uh, control. Uh, over the over the country, so when 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 that attack happened, um, what sort of? I mean, you had to have a lot of lessons learned when an embassy gets attacked once. <laughs> it's not like people are not going to take very strong proactive measures to try to prevent that from occurring twice. Um, so, 
what do you have any insight into what happened between those two times to kind of beef up security and kind of make it a little bit better? Is it just another guard, you know, kind of thing, or is it to start with? There was a huge drawdown. I don't know. I think how many how many Americans left? Twenty thousand. Uh, I mean the American civilian American, population, American yeah, civilian. but also the embassy staff was, was drawn. So down. we were just. Yeah. How many? We were, what, 54 plus 17 plus 6 from, uh, I don't know, hundreds. Yeah, well, it, this was um, when the Shah fell, though, that uh, the uh, embassy at that point was considerably uh, drawn down. Maybe, in, fa- in fact, I don't recall in the, in the run-up to the Shah's, uh, mm-hmm. to the Shah's fall. But there were, um, I don't, technically I couldn't say, but... Uh, the sort of uh, physical uh, security arrangements, uh, whether it was uh, sensors or whatever, I, I uh, couldn't say, but it, uh, strengthening walls, um, uh, strengthening, reinforcing uh, structures and so on on the embassy compound, I think that was a large part of it. Like the consulate. Our, our building was new, and it had been in a different, different place. Was it inside the compound before? I don't remember, but it was a far corner of the compound. The compound was was very, uh, very large. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I didn't know it was that large. Um, so uh, it was breached, and from what I remember reading, um, some of the documents were also pulled out as well. It wasn't just shredded documents, but not uh, not necessarily um burned documents the first time or the second time the first time the first time <clears throat> which i thought was interesting and and uh, something about that from what i remember reading was the incinerators were some of them were broken so they just kind of moved to shredding it but they never got around to fixing that issue so when the second one happened they had the same thing happen twice effectively is that does that sound right or am i misremembering what i read I don't remember hearing about the first time, but I know the second time they they were and they were trying to put so much in at once, and it that did change all the rules for all the embassies the the amount of um, of records about people and policies and various things were trimmed way down after that at all our embassies. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. But but that's right, and that's and even though they had shredded things, people were able to weave them together afterwards because they had so much time on their hands. Mm-hmm people they brought into the embassy afterwards it's pretty impressive i mean it's kind of one of those things you do when you're a little kid you know cut something up it's a big crossword puzzle effectively or whatever uh puzzle not crossword puzzle um so so a little bit about the sort of the culture i mean we had actually tried to help out the iranians I, i think this is kind of one of the understated things about the this conflict and this time frame uh, we had actually helped them f- uh, kind of liberate them from Russia as well. We were trying to help them kind of stop communi- the spread of communism. This is right around that era, Cold War era. Um, so why didn't that kind of ingratiate them to the United States? Well, for one thing, um, the uh, the U.S. Uh, was uh, uh, suspected or uh, it was felt that the United States was a main reason why uh, the Shah was allowed to return to uh, to Iran and resume control after the uh, elected leader Mossadegh, what's his name, the leftist, uh, with the so-called uh, it was called the Two-Day Party, had uh, uh, was in the uh, eyes of many Iranians the rightful leader, and so um, 
the, uh, the U.S. was closely associated with uh, um, the return of the Shah and the ouster of Mossadegh. Um, and so uh, whatever goodwill the U.S. Uh, um, had earned uh, in terms of the Iranian relationship with Russia, I think was erased, um, I would surmise, was erased by the uh, associated the U.S., U.S. government, uh, with a plot to remove Mossadegh and bring the Shah back uh, to uh, to rule. Mm-hmm. So leading up to the the actual second um, one, which is kind of the core of what I want to talk about with you, um, this was this was kind of brewing for a while. It seemed like there had been quite a bit of student uh, protests going on, specifically around him for some time leading up to this. This isn't like an overnight situation. Uh, can you talk about sort of the climate and what it was like living there? That is, you're referring to the protests uh, against... Against the embassy? Uh, yeah, well, Khomeini from the outset, uh, and his uh, supporters made it clear that they had little love for the United States. Um, Khomeini uh, condemned the, the Russians, the Soviet Union as well, but uh, he directed his ire particularly at the at the U.S., um, it's um, corrupt imperialist uh, power, um, <coughs> excuse me, exploiting uh, uh, the Iranian people. Uh, he had quite a bill of particulars, um, and, um, so every sort of uh, misdeed that could be committed by the great Satan, as it referred to the United States. Uh, I also heard it referred as the den of spies. <laughs> yeah, the U.S. Yeah. Excuse me, the that's, U.S. That's embassy. Quite a, quite a visual, yes. Anything you want to add to that? But uh, no, it, it was clear, in other words, um, that uh, uh, the, the challenge that Washington faced was how to readjust adjust its relationship with Iran uh, following the departure of the Shah, who had been... Uh, uh, been seen as a de facto ally in the turbulent part of the world. Khomeini um, didn't uh, um, didn't care much for the U.S. He made clear um, the embassy um, did everything possible to maintain a dialogue to establish a modus vivendi with uh, the new regime, but it was tough going, as exemplified by the February attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ongoing, uh, as you mentioned there, the protests against the embassy leading up to the actual uh, takeover. So the the first one happened in February, second one in November. So this is in the, it was the same year. It wasn't multiple years apart or something. Right. Um, and I think the second one was commemorating the year anniversary of the Shah's um, killing of some student protesters. Um, what was the situation around that? How did that end up happening or what was the story behind that 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 was the day of the martyrs can you talk about that i um don't well, recall much about it. i yeah remember there was an important event right. and I, I know the students were were there were a number of students killed and so the in what, the, what context in, do you know it's been too long <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it seemed like that was the moment that they decided okay we're going to have a march based on the anniversary of this event that's right. That was because they always celebrate um, death of martyrs. You know, people who are killed in the line of duty or for their cause. So, so in, in all most places we've been in in the Muslim world, I think people people will remember the certain anniversaries, 
And um, so, so this was a huge uh, demonstration. I think it started downtown. It was all, it was uh, not that far. It was also at the British Embassy. It was everywhere. We expected that there was going to be a big demonstration. Um, but what happened was, the weekend before the takeover, someone people had come to the to the embassy walls and written graffiti, "Death to Carter," "Death to America" on the walls. And so um, we closed the consulate as a protest, uh, demanding, and our charge went to the foreign ministry along with Vic Thompson, his uh, number, his head of the political section, and his security chief to protest uh, to, the, to the government that they needed to give put more guards and protection on the embassy. And so our, on, the, on the U.S. embassy. On the U.S. embassy. Mm-hmm. And so, that, so our office was closed. We closed. We were not seeing any any uh, visa applicants, not any, any uh, non-immigration, just visiting visas, visitors, visa, visitors yeah. visas that day in protest. There's also uh, another uh, irritant, strong irritant for many Iranians. That was the decision uh, by President Carter to allow the Shah to come into the United States uh, in uh, in October for uh, medical treatment. At, uh, that uh, was a, a controversial decision, uh, and uh, the uh, it certainly further angered Khomeini and his government. Their feeling was instead of allowing the shot in the United States, you Americans, uh, for medical treatment, you ought to send him back to Iran uh, for uh, and he, to face he was, justice. He was dying of cancer, right? He was, yeah, yeah. And they also thought it was just another setup, that he wasn't really sick, and that we were just going to put him back in power like we had before at, when we'd removed Mossadegh. Mm-hmm. So they were always thinking of conspiracy theories. So around this time was also, the, I think, the 15th uh, year anniversary of Khomeini's exile as well. So it was sort of a, I don't know, a trifecta there of reasons to be upset or celebrate or whatever, um, whatever version of that you want to say. Um, had you, you had some, you had some rumblings. This was going to be a big protest. Um, you had had some ask of maybe we should have more security here. Um, how many Marines were on base at the time? Probably had a dozen. Yeah. I, I think it was no more than a dozen. Okay. Cause mo- smaller embassies have about six, in the old days, now they've all been doubled up. Mm-hmm. I mean, thirteen was the number I heard. Mm-hmm. That uh, sounds about sense. right. The, the Twelve but plus the gunny. Yeah. So, whatever that number is, seems awfully small, especially for twenty-two acres. And that's a. <laughs> but, but that's just it. We depend on the on the the government, the nation that we're in, to defend us. Mm-hmm. Our our Marines are not allowed to shoot anybody. In fact, mm-hmm. you know. Unless they have authority, specific authority from the uh, from the ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I've got all kinds of questions about that, but um, but let's say um, let's say we talk about that in a minute. What happened on that day? So you both went to work um, as if it's kind of a normal day, except for this thing was happening, right? Like, kind of what. Walk me through your day. What? How did that unfold? I was waiting at home because um, I was waiting for the housekeeper the first day. We had just moved into uh, into our apartment the weekend before, <clears throat> and um, I was waiting for the housekeeper to come, and she never came. She worked for one of the other embassy uh, officers, 
And um, she had been a charwoman at, at the embassy. She had been one of the ladies to clean up. And so uh, she never came. And so then I went on over, walked on over to the embassy and um, found out that it was closed because of our, our protest for getting more security. So I said, Joe, this is a great time for me to take my passport over to the chancery and get my diplomatic card. I turn in my passport and get a diplomatic card. So I did that. And so when I went over there, those ladies said, what are you doing here today? Why did you come to work? It's the Day of the Martyrs. And I said, oh, I didn't know it was the Day of the Martyrs. So then I um, went back and told Joe that he should go over to the Chancery and take his passport, too, and get his uh, diplomatic card because those ladies were in a not very good mood, our local embassy employees. And luckily, he didn't pay any attention, and he didn't <laughs> go over there, or he would have been there uh-huh. <laughs> the time the embassy was taken over. What, so what was the point of the card? What was the diplomat card? Diplomatic you? card. When you when you go any place, you have to present it. Usually, hotels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's your identification from from that nation that you are that you're a, one of one of the diplomat gotcha. in the diplomatic corps. Uh-huh. Okay. By the way, the term chancery refers to the main embassy building. That's where the ambassador uh, and uh, many of the other um, sections, political section, economic section, and so forth, will have their offices. As opposed to, uh, in the case of this embassy, the consulate was, uh, let's say, call it an annex building in a uh, corner, far corner of the, of the embassy compound. Mm-hmm. So the chancellor was the main, the main building. And so they were not in a good mood because they were expecting trouble that day? Is that, is that right. the reason? That's right. Interesting. And they were trying to, like, shoo you away. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> right. Go home sort of thing. And so no. why didn't you? Why didn't you go home? I had a job. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was supposed to be doing my job. So, and I and we all we really did think we were in Fort Apache that that uh, our building had cost 2 million dollars, which was a whole lot of money back in 1979. <clears throat> and um we thought it was impenetrable. And we figured that th- when called, as most nations do, that the local government would send the police and take any invaders away. Yeah, I mean that's that's tricky when you're in a situation where you're in the middle of a coup, right? Or uh, I don't know if you'd really even call it that. Um, a transition. <laughs> transition is a good word. Yeah. Massive transition, right? Massive. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, then the protesters start showing up that day. Um, how did that start unfolding? What uh, they got uh, in through the main gate uh, to the uh, to the embassy compound. And um, some of them um, made a beeline for the chancery. Others walked across the um, compound to where we were uh, in the console. We battened down the hatches uh, so that a uh, pretty new strong uh, steel door there uh, to prevent uh, them from getting, uh, getting in. Um, they got into the chancery by um, threatening to. Uh, they, they took uh, the chief security officer. Uh, he happened to be outside the chancery, uh, and uh, they got him, marched him up to the front of the embassy, and said, "You open up the door. We're going to do something bad to him." They came up to the chancery and uh, did that. So that's why the door was opened. Our our door was never breached. Uh, to the consulate, the consulate door was never. Uh, never breached by the uh, 
by the uh, protesters. Um, but that's uh, so for, what would you say, several hours, uh, you had the um, embassy uh, right trying to reach uh, reach the police, uh, government, uh, other than the government to get help, uh, the help that never came, uh, destruction of documents. Um, destruction of visa plates. Back then we had visa plates, now we don't. Mm-hmm. So nobody could um, get make mm-hmm. false visas. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you know, and of course there was phone contact, radio contact uh, between the chancery and the consulate. Uh, at some point we stopped hearing the voices uh, of our American colleagues, and that was a, a sign that... Uh, they, uh, the chancellor was occupied. That was later, when we were at Bob Ender's house. Oh, okay. Correct me. <laughs> <laughs> Take over, madame. It's okay. <laughs> Your memory is much better than mine. <laughs> so you're, you're able to defend your little area, but the chancery's done. They're overridden. But before we get to that piece of drama, um, let's go back to the Marines for a second. So their mandate is to not shoot people. Uh, I've I feel like I've met a lot of Marines. That'd be a pretty tough, uh, tall order. <laughs> that requires, a, yeah, it's a strong sense of discipline. It's uh, only in very exceptional uh, circumstances, uh, is my sense. I mean, uh, I feel like thousands of people storming the gates is pretty exceptional. So what? Uh, yeah, but uh, if you're facing a huge crowd, uh, you know, you don't have enough Marines really to be able to uh, hold off yeah. uh, such a large crowd. That's why uh, Kathleen mentioned it's so important uh, to have uh, the local guard force um, plus the uh, local governments, the host governments, uh, security and police forces to prevent um, any sort of uh, breach of an embassy promised by, uh, by protesters um, and others or others. So, And I guess they had beefed up the local guard course, force, right? They, there was yeah. that fellow, that was their one fellow, and he was kind of shady, but he was supposed to be a responsible, uh, a good local guard leader. And I don't, I don't know what they did that day. I don't know if they decided they were outnumbered or what, but I don't think they stood in anybody, anybody's way. Yeah, clearly not. Or if they did, it was meaningless. Right. Um, and there were hundreds that got onto the compound, hundreds of people, and they had sticks and stones and things like that. Not, We didn't see any guns ourselves where we were, right, Joe? That's right. So they scaled the, uh, the walls, and at some point uh, I suppose they would have uh, broken whatever locks, whatever, and open the gates. So uh, from our perspective, our vantage point there in the consulate on the second floor, we could see them. Uh, what, was, what was going through your mind? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's hundreds of people laugh. going through the front gate and scaling the walls. What, I mean, what was going through your mind? I think what was going through our mind is this is going to be a repeat of February. And so they will come out. Uh, they will stick around and shout, make noise uh, for uh, a few hours, and then they'll leave, um, or they'll be forced to leave, and the government will intervene or whatever. Interesting. So you weren't even very worried. Oh. Not really. We were trying to tell our local staff to 
they were worried. They took off their ID cards and threw them behind the file cabinets. Mm. They were very worried about their connection. Mm. And it turns out pretty much rightfully so. Um, so why did why did they feel that way, and why did you feel differently? I mean, did they know something you didn't, or <laughs> is that just a hunch they got happened to get right on that case, or who knows for sure? It could have been a combination of, uh, of both. And they probably had a better finger on the pulse. They they probably had more sensibility about how things were going in general in the country that we probably didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Well, that's still interesting. So you were feeling kind of upbeat in some way, like this will be over in a couple hours. This is annoying now. We have to destroy things today, but tomorrow we'll just rebuild. No big deal. Well, Cora and I knew that we, they would send us home. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were, that was our worry. Uh-huh. Now, I'd only been there two months. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I haven't even gotten to see the art yet. <laughs> but we had. Okay, We'd been right. to Isfahan. And okay, we right. had just got, been away that weekend and, and our car broke down to a certain extent. We weren't sure. We wouldn't have made it back in time for the takeover, <laughs> but um, that was what I, we were thinking. That we were, we thought that's it. They're sending us home. Mm-hmm. And so, when that would happen, are we expecting helicopters to fly in, or you were just going to drive to the airport, or what was the what oh. was the exit plan that you had? In oh place? well, this was I. This was just I figured the State Department. Would, it would you know the the police would come, they would take away the demonstrators. And then the State Department would decide it was not safe for family members. So she and I would have to leave and everybody else could keep working. I see. Okay, so Joe would stay, but you would have to leave. That's right. I see. Okay. Yeah, that would be awful. Uh, Long-distance relationship overnight would mm-hmm. not be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, now the, the, the people are in the yard. Uh, the inmates have taken over the asylum kind of thing. And you have to leave um, or you want to leave, I'm assuming, after a certain point. So how did that end up going out? Well, we someone had thrown something through the men's restroom window. And so the the uh, Marine had grabbed, I think, smoke canisters and gone up there and tossed one out and then wired the ladies' room and men's room doors together so nobody could get in that way because the, the bathroom window wasn't mm-hmm. reinforced. So then one of our colleagues went downstairs. Um, I think it was Richard Queen, right? Went down and looked out the door and saw that there's nobody in the alley. The door that the uh, the, the um, applicants would come through that was off of the compound, so they wouldn't have to go through the compound. So it was that alley was empty, and the only person out there was the usual revolutionary guard who was not part of the demonstration. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, we and uh, let's call them clients that day, people, both uh, American citizens and Iranians that had come to the consulate for business. Uh, organized ourselves to uh, exit uh, this uh, uh, consulate door that led directly onto the side street, onto the alley that Kathleen mentioned, in groups of uh, four or five, uh, something like that. Um, so that's how our uh, that's how we left uh, the, uh, the consulate. Some members. Um, of the group, some of our colleagues turned the wrong way and were picked up by the uh, by the mil- they were spotted by the militants, picked up and brought onto the embassy compound uh, with uh, with the others. By now hostages, we were fortunate uh, we were not uh, spotted. Mm-hmm. Made our way to a colleague's house as our first stop. Mm-hmm. And so, was that colleague aware that you were coming, or did you just show up in his door and start knocking? Or he was how with that- us. Oh, he was with he was you. With Bob Anders. Okay. 
Oh, I for some reason I thought that was Martin Williams at that point. Am I misremembering? No, Martin. No, 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 I must be getting this wrong. <laughs> okay, so Bob Anders, um, he he was with you, and he went to his house. Um, was he an American? Yes, he okay. was. He was the had a uh, visa section. Uh, he was a consular officer like us. Okay, um, or senior. Yeah, yeah was, but he was in charge of the visa process. Okay, yeah. and so he was like, "Come on in, stay here for a while." But that can't have been particularly safe because they had records of where everyone lived and worked on in the somewhere on base, I would assume. Right. That's right. And so he so he said, I'm going home. And we said, we're coming with you, Bob. So we separated a little bit more because we had to go past a checkpoint with some of the Revolutionary Guards. So we were in twos and we made it to his apartment. And then that's when we were listening on to the radio. And that's when we heard finally. Um, only Farsi speakers, so we knew that they'd captured everyone and had the radios and that nobody was left because we could hear the people in the vault talking and that would have been the last most secure area where they would have been shredding everything and burning papers and things like that. And so once they, were, once they quit talking on our walkie-talkies, we knew that everybody was captured. And what went through your mind at this point? <laughs> you know, it's not another Sunday walk in the park where you get to return to work tomorrow. Well, I, uh, I, I think um, it was a case of uh, eternal optimism, uh, hmm. uh, unfounded it, uh, in retrospect, but feeling is, okay, um, we'll see how long this lasts, but um, it uh, uh, it's going to be over quickly, you know government will decide that it has to intervene uh, um, clear the embassy and uh, you know, things uh, the embassy will be back to operation uh, maybe by tomorrow wow you still had hope That's amazing. yeah yeah so th- so then we were calling other places there was the iran american society and they were not on the compound area they were in a different part of town and so we called them and they were working they were there uh, there, Kate Cobe and her colleague. The public affairs branch um, arm of the uh, office of the embassy. And she had a line open to Washington. And so they spoke for hours. And then we tried to call other people, other apartments, to see if there were people who had not been at, on the compound. And we'd talked to a number of people. Um, Lillian Johnson, who was the, sec- the secretary to the security officer, was supposed to leave that day on a plane and... Uh, her flight was canceled, and so she was back in an apartment, and people were hiding. They were very close to the embassy and sort of hi- hiding below their windowsills. <clears throat> and so we talked to Kate, and so she knew where we were and that who we were, you know, who was with us. And then she called later that night and asked some of us to come over and uh, keep the line open because back in those days, if you hung up, you couldn't necessarily get a phone line again. Mm-hmm. So she asked us to come over and uh, keep the line open to Washington and call around. And so she sent her driver, and Joe and I and Mark and Cora went over, and Bob stayed at his house, and we talked uh, to Washington, and we talked to Vic Thompson, who <laughs> was in this chandeliered ballroom over at the foreign ministry because the secular officers were still in charge of the Iranian government, and that's where our charge was, and Vic Thompson, his number three, and his security officer. And so we were talking to them, so he knew where we were. He knew what was happening with us. 
And so then... Um, so where are you at this point? We are in the cultural affairs building. Okay, got it. So we, at dawn, um, they'd rested, so they said, we'll take over the phones now. And so um, she loaned us her driver, and we went back to the Ligex house because they lived close to the embassy, and we picked up some clothes and whatever was in the refrigerator and drove to our house. And um, so we were there when... Vic Thompson called called so, us so back. So who's us? Is oh, it sorry. just the two of us? The uh, two of you? Joe and I and Mark and Cora. Okay. And so we're back at our house, and I called my mother finally, and I said, you know, you're going to hear about some news here, but I'm just fine, and it'll all be over pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> that uh-huh. was the last time she heard from me <laughs> for sure three she months. Love that call. Uh, <laughs> so then, um, then Vic called us and said he had a friend at another at the British Embassy. And um, they would come and pick us up and take us over to their compound. So we thought that was great because, as you said, somebody was probably going to find the list of housing and go check on various places and see where people were. So a couple of um, a couple of fellows from the British Embassy came and picked us up, and then we went to Bob's house and picked him up, and all went to the British compound that night. Mm-hmm. And how were they? How, how, they were great. What was the mood there? Well, they were worried because I think their embassy was attacked. Yeah, yeah they had experienced uh, also uh, protesters uh, getting over the wall. In February of that year or at some uh, other point? At, at, at this point. Oh, really? Uh, oh, it was yeah, that, except, that day before? Uh, the same day, the same day that our um yeah, but embassy. this is this is now the next day, right? This, so they experienced it the day. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just so I'm clear here, <laughs> there's a lot of protests going on here. Uh, well, actually, that's a that's probably a good clarifying question. Was the protest still happening the next day, or did it completely die down? I don't have a sense of that. My, my guess is at that point the uh, protesters had uh, sorted themselves out uh, and uh, were organizing themselves for um, a prolonged, what turned to be their prolonged stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the occupation, setting up, in other words, the the structures and so forth for the occupation of the embassy and making arrangements for uh, how they were going to deal with the hostages and where they would keep them. That's sort of basic, uh, sort of basic issues. And how many hostages did they take? Seventy-two. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it was fifty-four plus seventeen. After a certain, after a couple of weeks, they let. What they was the 17? Was that? That was women and some of the African Americans because they said they were subjugated in America and so they could be freed and set, sent home. Right. Right. I remember reading about this. So, to for the audience who maybe not have caught that, uh, different people were released at different times. Um, so, when you say 54 plus 17, 17 were released earlier. That's right. Um, but how much after, earlier? After do you two remember? weeks. Two after weeks? two weeks. Okay. So, it was pretty quick. They were They were turned around pretty quick. Um, was there any sense of how they were treated while they were in captivity? They were tied to chairs. Some of them were. I don't think we can say, yeah, you would know more than I do about the, uh, the treatment. I had maybe read more than I have. They had, I think different uh, hostages had different experiences. Obviously, it was a horrible experience mm-hmm. for all of them. Um so uh, um, there may have been different levels of abuse uh, directed at uh, uh, hostages, depending on what their jobs were in the embassy and, and so on. Well, if if you go in thinking everyone's a spy, that's going to be uh, 
you're going to have a different sort of reaction than if they're just stamping visa cards, you know, that's a wholly different thing. But they, I don't think it made it. I think they, no, I, think I mean, they depending on your point of view, you know, it's a, if you think everyone's a visa stamper, well, why would I, why would I hurt this person? But if you think they're a spy, you know, it's, mm. it's kind of the dehumanization stuff that uh, you see a lot in authoritarian regimes. Like they're not human anymore. They're something else. So, okay, so you left your house to where? So we were, so we spent the night in the in a house at the British Embassy. Mm-hmm. And then right. um, we were talking to Vic, and Vic said, I have a Thai cook who works for me, and he works for two other Americans, and he's got the keys to the house. So um, you'll be able to hide in their, in their homes. So first we went to John Graves' house, who was a hostage, uh, the Thai cook, Sam had keys to their house so the Brits once again took us gave us a ride over there and we spent a day there and then um, John's housekeeper was upset because she could see that we were eating the food from the refrigerator mm-hmm. and I think she was going to turn us in so we could either tie her up <laughs> or <laughs> go somewhere else uh-huh. so we called Vic and then we switched again. It seems to me like on foot. We went to another. We went to Kate Cobb's house, but it had no curtains. It was on the street, and that's when we called John Shear down at the Canadian Embassy and said, "You know, we're about we're out of money. This is not ending. We need help." And uh, that's a pretty strong cry for help. Um, I'm assuming he was just like ready to put his own credit card on the line as. A lot of people in those situations, they just recognize that people need help, even if they can't get it diplomatically. But uh, I'm assuming also we're good friends with Canada, so they were more than happy to roll out the red carpet as much as they could. How did that process go? I don't know for sure, but what I would say happened is John Sherdown, who's the head of the concert section, uh, would have checked with his ambassador. Uh, I think would have probably in turn have checked with uh, Ottawa. Um his, uh, his government to make sure it was okay. Um, that's probably how that, uh, I would think that's how that worked. Mm-hmm. So. And so he said, come on over. First of all, did you have some sort of relationship with him before that? Um, or how did you get in touch with him? Bob Anders and he had played tennis. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> so it's a, it's a weak friendship at best. All right. Um, okay. So, what happened? So you went over to the Canadian embassy at this point? We, um, the Brits gave us a, gave us a lift. Uh, I loaned some of my scarves, which I travel with, to, uh, to the fellows with blonde hair so they wouldn't be so visible in the car. Mm-hmm. And so John Sheardown opened his garage door so the car could drive right in and nobody would see us getting out. And so we went to John Sheardown's house. And so that was the um, the Lijeks, Joe, uh, Cora, and Mark Lijek, Joe, and I, and Bob Anders, and so we all arrived at the Sheardown's house. And there, um, the Canadian ambassador was uh, was present, and the decision was, um, how are we going to divide up the group? Uh, the ambassador said, "I'll take two of them." Um, and that was Kathleen and, and me, because we don't place uh, bridge. I think that was the criteria. <laughs> the others did. So, uh, the, That's the, when you just learn to play bridge really quickly. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so, so that's how it worked out. Uh, Kathleen and I were over to the ambassador's residence, and uh, the other four were over at uh, the Sheardowns. Uh-huh. Yeah, three, and then later, later. Um, uh, yeah, I say four. The th- the fourth person to stay with them uh, was the agricultural uh, attaché, uh, Lee Schatz, who joined later. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, the movie Argo, which I am sure you've heard something about, um, is sort of playing out in the background. Um, I mean, not as as it was written, but the the real story of what actually happened with the movie Argo was happening in the background around this time frame. It was starting to get some kind of traction. Um, for those who have not seen the movie, um, there was a uh, two from what I understand, not just one CIA operatives who were sort of brought into Iran to, um, under some sort of, uh, false identities, et cetera, get you to, um, have an alternative identity so you could leave the country and it would make sense. Um, but under Canadian visas, as opposed to us visas, if passports, passports, passports sorry, passports. So can you walk me through how that all happened? Like how, from your perspective, what uh, what occurred there? Well, we kept thinking that it would still be over at a certain point, and there were, I don't know how many emissaries and people came trying to um, break the gridlock, but every time something would happen, the responsible people in the Iranian government would be lose their position. And so at, I think at a certain point, from what I understood, the lady who was the foreign affairs minister... Uh. The lady who was the foreign Yeah, they're equivalent of the Secretary of State, the foreign, right. foreign minister. Laura MacDonald. She buttonholed Cyrus Vance in Europe and said, if you don't get these, get <laughs> your people out of, out of uh, Iran because, you know, you're endangering the Canadians too. We need to do something about this. Then we'll send them out on bicycles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so then they called the CIA. I was doing a talk in uh, Washington back when all of the movie came out and everything, and I was talking to some people from the CIA, they only had a month to put this all together. Mm-hmm. So it must have been, um, we left in January. End of January, yeah. January, so they probably sometime in December, Tony Mendez went out and visited his friends uh, in California who were great at makeup and all the things he needed in his disguise work and figured out a story and set it all up. And so... Um, so with, they came, I guess, about, let's see, we left on the 28th. I think that's right. That yeah. right? So we had about two days with Tony, and um, and he, you know, he talked to us and told us what are these three scenarios could be. We could be oil company people. We could be teachers. None of that made sense. Why would we come to Iran? And then Hollywood looking for a movie site. So that made sense to all of us, and we, we, could, we knew we could play the parts, and if if we if we were asked anything about teaching in Iran or oil, none of us had any answers, but we knew we could make up stuff about Hollywood. So Tony told me later that that was the whole point. It was that we would have a story so we could save our own lives. Mm-hmm. And so um, he convinced us that that would work, and Joe asked him lots of questions since he'd been reading the newspaper every day and listening to the radio and knew just how much animosity there was out there. And knew that if we were caught, we would be traveling with false documents, and and they could say, yes, we told you they were all spies, and here's proof. Mm -hmm. And so our friends at the embassy would be in trouble, the Canadians would be in trouble. So we were convinced it would work, 
and got Thank our you. clothes, and they gave us clothes. They, we had no clothes because we'd left them every place we'd been hiding. And so they gave us uh, suitcases and all sorts of stuff so we'd look like normal people going to the airport. Mm-hmm. And did you actually read the script that you were supposed to be pretending to make? I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, I think other uh, uh, other members of the group did. Did they? Uh, I think they did, or they were consulted on the script. We decided. Oh, you're we talking. Were... You're talking. You're talking about the the fake movie that we were yeah. supposed to. No. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we did not. Um, I mean, that would be kind of funny if you'd actually read it and like, actually, this is a good movie. Maybe we should actually make this movie for real. <laughs> Hey, Robert, can I ask a question? Yes, sir. Uh, Joe and Kathleen, how accurate was the movie <laughs> compared to your experience? You want to answer that because you have a... Uh... Well, um, they left out John Sheardown completely. And so that always upset me because every time we would talk to the press, we would always say, thank John and Zena Sheardown because they did so much and they never got any recognition. And even when we would give uh, interviews to the newspapers, we would say that over and over, and it never got printed. And, in fact, John Sheardown was even, they were going to send him off to Kuwait after that. That's just wonderful, that close to Iran. So they they realized that was a mistake. But anyway, um, when, I, when I spoke with somebody, with Ben Affleck, they said that uh, it would be too confusing to have another another location, you know, have the other four people hiding someplace, and it would also be two more actors, and get the story would get too complicated. People would lose the, the thread. Mm-hmm. So, luckily in the... Well, I don't think they ever did. They finally recognized... I think they put a couple of lines at the end of the movie after that, mentioning him mm-hmm. and his wife. But uh, what I liked was they did show that the Iranians did have a grievance, have grievances... And I thought that was great to show the other side of it. And I also liked the way they, the, the housekeeper was a composite. She wasn't, there wasn't really a housekeeper like that. Um, there was a male cook and housekeeper at the ambassador's residence where we stayed. And at the Sheardown's house, there was a Filipina housekeeper who was, had been with them for years. And so um, they show in the, in the, in the movie, they have the housekeeper, you know, keep keeping, keeping the trust and being loyal and not exposing everyone. And that's what the housekeepers did where we at Ken's house, they could have turned us in any time. Mm-hmm. They were, they were never told who we were because um, it was supposed to be for a couple of days. And so they were um, told that we were Ken's friends from Canada. But after Just we wanted to stay for a couple months <laughs> yeah. with no clothes, <laughs> with no clothes and never <laughs> went anywhere and hid when, when Peter Jennings came for dinner. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so um, they knew, and they were, you know, they were, they protected us. So I was glad they showed that. Um, there were the predictable Hollywood flourishes, uh, the uh, chase scene, of course, uh, at the end on the air, um, airport tarmac never never happened. The flight got away, uh, got off uh, smoothly after about an hour delay, but nonetheless smoothly. I did not have the. Uh, Exchange in Farsi uh, with the uh, uh, security official uh, about the purpose of our um, visit mm-hmm. uh, in, at the uh, uh, as shown in the movie. Uh, 
it was pretty uneventful actually very early in the morning and uh the uh, our uh, the checking the passports and so on went uh, went pretty much without uh, without incident um of course, we did not go down to the uh, to the market, the bazaar, the day before we were to leave as presented in the movie. That'd been totally nuts. <laughs> Otherwise, it was a good story, and it's the movie presented as a good story. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, what would you think? Well, and Tony, Tony's really quite an amazing person. So this that story was really about him. Yeah, and he he's he's brilliant. I mean, he was started as an artist there and was doing forgeries and things, luckily, because he had to reforge our our passports because they had the wrong entry date. They were going by the, they had changed the year. They'd gone to the Islamic year, and they didn't know that when they were <clears throat> putting our false visas in the passports. So he had to fix that. Wow. So lucky it was him that came yeah, to get no us. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so, okay, I hope that answered Chris's question because um, – I feel like there was other things that were a little bit questionable too um, about the story, but um, but I think the core of it. I mean, I saw CIA had a number of tweets they put out about this exchange about what happened and um, you know the amount of embassies that were you were going back and forth. Um, uh, New Zealand consulate had was an emergency backup, although they never were ended up being used. There's a bunch of other stuff that kind of never made it in the movie that, you know, there's a lot of people working behind the scenes here. Um, right. Canadians were barely mentioned really for how much they had done. Uh, do you have any idea what the backlash against, or if there was ever any backlash against Canada was uh, for their help in that process? They had to close. They closed their embassy. I don't know for how long. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was a pretty massive loss for them. That's right. And ultimately the West, but, I mean, they got you out, so. Yeah, I yeah, know they paid the price. So sure did. Eternally grateful to them. No kidding. Wow. Um, and so the rest of the people were held for um, over a, a year. A year. A year. 400 and something. 444 uh, days altogether. 444 days. And the way I understand it, um, they released them on the, on the day um, that I believe Reagan took office. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that was a statement. That was not, uh, <laughs> they had planned that. <laughs> right. It's not just, oops, it's just a random day of the week or something. Um, do you have any sense for why they felt that that was a good time to do it? Um, was that just a stab at the West to, to hurt the previous, at, previous administration? I think a stab at, uh, at Carter. I don't know why there was such a level of uh, animosity toward Carter personally, but there was, and uh, it came through clearly in the statements by uh, by Khomeini. So I think it was a final slap uh, that they wanted to administer. Khomeini wanted to administer to uh, to Carter, and it followed, of course, a uh, series of negotiations in Algeria, uh, U.S. Iranian negotiations. Uh, so, but. Uh, uh, yeah, why that specific day? I think that was a reason to uh, final insult mm-hmm. uh, to Carter. And how did this affect your relationship? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to have gone through. <laughs> did you guys feel closer than ever, or did you do uh, no sure. change? No change at all, or no, I was 
been through this together, and um, it's not going to happen again. <laughs> so let's hope. So we can go to more dangerous places. <laughs> so let's go on with the foreign service. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you did not stop at that point. Um, so this, whatever it was, that was an adventure for you. You, uh, you didn't look back at it. I think a lot of people would go. That was a little too close for comfort. I mean, when you're getting sneaked to embassies um, and having false identities to to be able to travel, that's a that's a level that most people are not going to want to do twice. Um, but you did not just say, "All right, I'm done." I mean, I've, I'm fairly certain you could have <laughs> could have bowed out at that point. No one would have been upset about that. You would have been able to to make a case for it, but you didn't. Um, no, the idea never tell you the truth and never crossed my mind. I don't, Kathleen. I was, you know. We were ridiculously naive, I think, but at the same time, we really thought we'd check the box, and these sorts of things just didn't happen. Other countries protect their embassies. When here, what Joe was back in 2012, when I'm, I've been. That's why I was back in Washington. Is because our embassy was attacked again, and even the Sudanese government came and took the demonstrators away. And so they did a lot of damage, and I think I was evacuated again because after two months. So that, um, but the government of Sudan came and protected the the embassy along with our local local guard force. But that's what they're supposed to do. And I don't know. I've never. Have you ever heard of uh, in other countries of the people not the government not protecting the embassies? It's rare. Yeah, it's very rare. Um, I mean, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> You're well, supposed you to be protected. Them. That's right. Um, it may be eventually expelled if they don't, if they're not getting along, but protected up to that point, right? That's right. Um, so we have not reestablished um, an embassy in Iran that, that I'm aware of um, throughout all these years. So that's really sad. You know, I don't think the you just said the Canadians. You don't think they have either. Oh, they have. Oh, they have. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They've. Everyone loves Canada. Come on, <laughs> as they should. So, did you stay in touch with any of the other hostages or people who were in your situation? Go ahead. We have limited contact. A couple of them. Go because ahead. we're never we're never in the United States. We've spent the last forty years. Basically overseas, I think Joe, you had what two Washington assignments, maybe. Hmm. So every time there was a reunion, we were on the wrong side of the Atlantic, <laughs> and so um, or we were in the middle of a transition or something like that. So uh, we we see the I've stayed in touch with Cora and Mark um, regularly. I just saw their daughter for lunch at Shazy the other day. Oh, they're here <laughs> in Austin. Well, they live in in uh, California, but their daughter's here uh-huh. and in New York. Okay. And so um, they came to visit her, and we all went to an Iranian restaurant. Wonderful food, by the way. Wow, that <laughs> we, sounds great. I remember how to say, Heli Khushmaze. That means that was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we stayed in touch with them, and, and thanks to the movie, there have been various occasions in Washington when we would be asked to speak or get together with the other, with Bob Anders, who's still kicking, mm-hmm. 97, I think. Wow. And... Um, and I saw Tony a couple of times then. And then when they had the premiere of the movie, I went, I was invited to that, at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, since I was back from Khartoum. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any sense of, I mean, I, looking at it post mortem, um, I get a sense that Ayatollah Khomeini got a lot of prestige from this. 
much more than he would have had this not occurred. Um, and maybe even wouldn't have been able to take seize control of the country had this not occurred. Do you have any sense of um, how that all played out? I think that um, he would have, for one thing, I think he would have stayed in charge whether or not it had been the, the takeover. Um, who knows exactly what advice he was receiving uh, from um, members of his uh, of his team, close advisors, they saying, you got to stand up to the students. Um, his government tried to stand up to the students, and it fell. It, um, I mentioned the government headed by thought to be moderate Western uh, educated in some cases types, but they didn't last long. Uh, so his prestige, um, well, uh, you can look at it another way, which is that um, uh, it's sort of uh, presiding over uh, the um, holding of uh, uh, innocent uh, diplomats as hostages uh, in some uh countries, uh, some parts of the world, um, democratic countries, the West uh, and elsewhere, is not going to be seen in a particularly positive light. So maybe prestige for uh, for some uh, hardline uh, Islamic militants, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think overall, uh, it uh, uh, if anything on balance in much of the world, it detracted uh, from uh, from his prestige. Mm. I got the impression, I can't remember which article I read on this, but uh, the students weren't sure how Khomeini would react to this. So this wasn't exactly a home run from their perspective. They were very nervous that he might, you know, put them all in jail because technically it was illegal. (laughs) The whole point of the government is to protect your allies uh, and your uh, embassies in your country. So, um, but... For whatever reason, he decided that was um, something that would somehow give him more power or credibility with the student population, or maybe even help, you know, build uh, some sort of army for him uh, out of the ashes of all of that. Uh, any sense of like how, what he was going through his mind or what his staff or like why would why would he side with them in that context when he could have just as easily said, "Get out of the country." We thought he was going to. We thought he was going to do that, and then he saw the demonstrations. And I don't know who was organizing them all, but there were thousands and thousands of people there. And he realized it was a galvanizing force. And I think that's what convinced him. Yeah, I think of them, as you mentioned, there the massive uh, crowds that came out. Uh, Day and so it's night. a way of consolidating his power mm-hmm. uh, in a situation that was still kind of dicey. He still had some of the leftist opponents uh, among, among others of the, of the regime that he had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, moving forward in history a little bit, um, do you believe that this might have had something to do with um, Iraq's um, interest in taking over or you know attacking Iran and vice versa, actually, um, leading up to this? Because had we been in good relationships with Iran, the chances of Iraq wanting to pick that fight seems pretty low. Um, however, since we were nowhere in the picture, it seems like that really destabilized that little region right there. Do you have any sense for that? I, I yeah, think, go ahead. I, I think that's exactly what happened. 
And I and I think that I sometimes wondered if the hostages would have been freed if they had not had to fight the Iraqis and get their get their weapons and get have their money, you know, their billions returned, much of their money. And I think they had they had arms. I think there were air, airplanes or something that were supposed to go there. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they wanted something back. And I I do think that that's why the hostages were were freed because it was about the same kind of timing. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were afraid of Ronald Reagan. I don't know, but um, I'm sh- I would I would I'm really I'm sure that the that they saw Iran as weakened, and so. When we got to Kuwait, there was still the Iran-Iraq war going, and and uh, Kuwaiti, um, Kuwaitis with uh, could not go back to could not go back to Iran with uh, young boys because they'd all be drafted. Mm-hmm. So that's not exactly what you asked me. No, I know it's, but uh, I still think it's interesting because this this kind of ripple kind of just kept going. It wasn't like a lot of these conflicts, there'll be a kind of a burst and then they're kind of over. But this one just kept going and going and going. Um, but backing up just slightly, um, so the Shah died um, really shortly thereafter <clears throat> in 1980, uh, I think. Mm. Um, but a lot of people think that the protest probably would not have taken place had we not taken the Shah in for his cancer treatment. <clears throat> So do you think it was worth it? Do you think we should um, have brought him in or should you think we should have said, no, you, you have to stay in your own country and deal with the, the people there, which might have caused less conflict with the protesters? It's really... Uh, I, know it's a, I know it's a contra, uh, contrafactual sort of conversation, but do you have any sense would that have had totally different impact on the protesters or do you think it was going to happen either way? I think it was uh, an additional irritant, and uh, could that have been uh, the tipping point? Well, look what the Americans are doing now. Uh, this is the final straw. Um, it certainly could have been uh, the case. Uh, you could say from the other side, they've put yourself in uh, Jimmy Carter's position. Uh, here's this longtime uh, ally, um, purely humanitarian grounds uh, make it clear that it's uh, only for the purpose of medical treatment. It's going to be very temporary, uh, and our credibility as a a country that uh, is not going to uh, uh, fear uh, the um, consequences of taking humanitarian action. Uh, We've Look at it from that perspective. Uh, uh, let's go ahead and do it. Why then? We well, compelling reasons why we should do it. So it's, it's t- it was a very needless to say it was a very tough call. Um, it seems to me um, you can argue both ways. Because you could, I mean, yes, you could definitely argue both ways. I'm just kind of curious what you think because it seems like. Once Ayatollah Khomeini comes into power, we start seeing Hezbollah come on scene, and now we have regional conflicts all over the world, and the Daesh, and all these things. This ripple effect, like <clears throat> it really destabilized the region a lot. Had we not taken some, you know, cancer patient in, like how much different would the world ha- have been? Maybe not at all. Maybe a lot. And it's kind of interesting to think about. <clears throat> and ultimately it probably was the right thing to do. Like as a, as a humanitarian mission. 
Um, but what was the downstream effect of all of that goodwill? You know. Yeah. No. It's uh, absolutely the whole region. The whole region now. Lebanon. Lebanon is falling apart. Syria. But Iran. Iran is sending drones to the Russians. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it. It is really a huge <laughs> ripple effect. I which, mean, which is silly because uh, we were helping them be free of Russia, and now we're, it's all kind of coming back. <clears throat> but uh, I mean, I guess. The enemy is your enemy is your friend, right? Um, and that's really what it comes down to is sort of an alliance of kind of misfit toys in some ways. Um, um, so from what I can tell now, uh, the embassy has been totally repurposed. Um, do you, have you read anything about this? Um, it's a museum, something um, like that. I don't know. Well, I, I've heard, yes, it's a propaganda factory of some sort um (laughs) it's sort of it's turned into this very kind of perverted version of what it once was Mm. it has turned into what i've read and and this might be wrong but committee uh committee for the commemoration uh commemoration of martyrs of the global islamic campaign uh use it to recruit martyrdom seekers um so it is as you said a museum like come in and find out how awful the americans were and the den of spies and all this and then you'll get ushered into this uh, suicide vest over here, sir, or whatever. <clears throat> not mm. not that rapidly, but you get my drift, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, in the first couple of days of them running this operation, they said they recruited several hundred volunteers. And so that's, I mean, that's the beginning of a Hezbollah right there. That's, um, you know, that's the beginning of a Daesh right there. That's, that's that's very easy to turn several hundred people into a very operational cell that you can start uh, moving all you know, chess pieces around the world. So how do you feel? I mean, the place that you worked every day, like, how's that? How's that? And the that Iranian bring? people, the Iranian people that we met were cultured and charming and poetic and people you'd like to know. Mm-hmm. And to, to think they're all, that's what they're having to deal with now. Yeah, the uh, the sense of uh, grievance, and um, uh, particularly among youth and uh, parts of the uh, parts of the Islamic world, um, that uh, has resulted in this, um, this small minority um, deforming uh, Islam in order to justify violence against uh, innocent uh, innocent persons. Um, which um, sort of indicates the depth of alienation. But if in terms of um, uh, ripple effects, um, I would uh, fast forward to uh, to Iraq, and I would uh, cite uh, the uh, uh, our action in uh, uh, in Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein as. Uh, a key factor in creating a power vacuum. Uh, Iraq can no longer serve, uh, can no longer serve, or is present as an effective counterweight uh, to uh, to Iran. Iranian influence, uh, if uh, if anything, is growing stronger, um, and uh, leaving, uh, uh, creating. You could say ungoverned spaces, but they're actually governed in some cases by the uh, ISIS, Daesh, uh, as you mentioned, um, Hezbollah, uh, and others. Um, 
where government um, structures are weak, uh, where, uh, to begin with, where um, the uh, appeals to extremist uh, versions of Islam have a powerful appeal, seems to me, continue to to face this uh, the scourge of, uh, uh, of Islamic uh, extremism, Islamic terrorism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, I, something else that made the news, um, all over the news in a very similar way, <clears throat> was Benghazi. Um, when you saw that, did that sort of bring back any memories? Was that sort of like, wow, um, thankfully it didn't go that way. Cause that was a very different end to an embassy, uh, or a, an outpost or whatever that was, um, that should have been protected and, and certainly wasn't. Um, it seems like it, it has a similar ring of not enough people with guns and, you know, protecting that region there area but that i think that was just like almost nothing it wasn't even really a a, an embassy it was hardly not even a mission it was just uh it was kind of a place people would visit once in a while it wasn't up and running Mm. and so i think i think um the place where he was uh yeah where he was killed right and what i read was this is just what i've read in the paper was that the the CIA was was collecting arms which had been all all over the place when when gaddafi fell and so they were trying to collect arms, and and um, people knew about them being there in the area. And then uh, Ambassador Stevens went to visit the area um, in celebration of 9/11, sort of to, to see some friends and thank them for their help somehow. But it wasn't it wasn't an embassy. It wasn't it didn't have the regular sort of protection. Mm. And so, but um, it did have a s- relatively similar size of uh, military presence there, though. It's like eight or ten people, let's say, um, not hundreds and not none, you know, but in that uh, you know a small platoon sort of uh, size. But I don't know if they were his, his. I don't know if they were protecting him. I think I know he went with his probably his security officer, maybe in some and some special forces or some special bodyguards. But I don't know. I really don't know. I you know I don't know exactly how many people he had with him, but. Just got to show that um, there are some times that you, uh, times when you, uh, when we send people um, into dangerous places. There was an example of uh, of that, uh, and we saw the ripple effect there because uh, a number of our embassies, including the one uh, in uh, Sudan, uh, were uh, were attacked. Yeah, in the t- aftermath you, of that. Yeah, t- tell me about that. It seems like you uh, had a pretty harrowing go of that one as well. Well, that was because of the video, though. The, our, our embassy and the German embassy and the British embassy in Sudan were attacked, and some of those people were bussed in to, in order to make the crowd. Mm-hmm. And so luckily our embassy had been moved from the, the old place where it was downtown to, an, um, to be bigger and more fortified in a different part of town. That's where Joe was. And so we watched on CNN while the, the British embassy and the German embassy were burning and then, um, luckily, the police at that point realized the government realized that they had a mob on their hands, and they so I think there were a few hundred demonstrators that were bussed over to the American embassy, and then the, then the government 
uh, stepped in and brought tanks and things like that and stopped the uh, embassy from being breached. But Joe was there inside, and so um, they just... I think there was about a million dollars of worth of damage done to this just about brand new embassy. <laughs> well, but at least it's only damage, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's and, right. And luckily, our local guard force stayed right in position and defended the building. And so then, um, so then, anyway, the family members and non-essential personnel got evacuated. We were evacuated. I think you guys are just bad luck. <laughs> they go to embassies and they start falling. Yeah, I sort of think that. Yeah, there was also Code d'Ivoire. <laughs> I got another one. Oh, geez. Okay. All right, go ahead. What was that one? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like this is a, this is a recurring thing in your life. Well, um, at this point, let's see, Code d'Ivoire, uh, there was a battle. You, you explained, Joe, you better. You know all these things, all these terms. There was a power struggle. Um, the attempted military um, coup um, followed by an election uh, that was uh, in some ways uh, flawed. Then we arrived, this prior to 2001, we arrived post uh, at the embassy there in Cote d'Ivoire in 2001. Um, tensions continued to, to, to simmer among the uh, rival political uh, factions. Then uh, about a year uh, into it, 2002, there was a failed uh, coup attempt. But the coup plotters and their supporters um, managed to escape and move to the northern part of the country where they established a bridgehead. Um, and so uh, the country was effectively divided between uh, the south, where the, the government uh, remained in control, and north, where the uh, the rebels uh, remained uh, in uh, in control. Uh, that continued for f- uh, several years. Uh, UN mediation, other efforts, uh, disengagement uh, agreements, and so on. Um, so that was. Uh, uh, I served there from two thousand one to two thousand four. You were uh, were evacuated in two thousand two. I don't know when you were able for to nine reti- months. There we go. Stability returned after nine months, mm-hmm. and family members could re- could return. I think you're cut off. Uh, <laughs> that's too many times. <laughs> Did you get some sort of special pin for making it three times? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the bad luck pin, as you mentioned. That's there. right. Um, so. I think the most recent example of a similar kind of thing happening was Afghanistan. Um, And that was by all accounts, just about the most disastrous withdrawal. I think we could have possibly managed to, to have happen. I mean, it was just very poorly designed. Um, I know a number of people who uh, worked with or on or helped or knew a lot about pineapple express um, dropping off, militants in country to exfil people who we had worked with before the basically the fall of Afghanistan back to uh, back to the militants who live there. Um, the the problem I think well, I think one of the interesting issues with that is it kind of similar to uh, the original uh, Iranian embassy um, fall because, the documents, although they were different kinds of documents, they were electronic documents, 
were still widely available. Like, uh, for instance, uh, DNA tests. We had a lot of DNA tests of the people we work with because we need some way to identify who they are. Now this has fallen in the hands of the people in country and they're able to figure out who is who inside these countries, you know, inside the country, whether they work with the Americans or not. And this is, again, one of those kind of massive ripple effects that I think will end up causing a lot of instability in the region uh, and mistrust for the United States and technology and all these things. <laughs> like it's, it's a really bad situation for us. Um, did you get any sense from your friends of like how that, how that all played out when that went down? Uh, I have to say not from my perspective. I, did, I uh, followed Afghanistan a bit, but not, not much. And I really didn't uh, talk to, uh, um, to people about it, uh, certainly agree with you. The withdrawal was uh, was disastrous. Whatever you think about the decision to uh, pull the plug, so to speak, and withdraw, the way it was done uh, was uh, uh, well, it was nothing short of uh, catastrophic um, for the Iran- for the Afghani's first and foremost. Uh, but it must it must eventually ripple back in your direction because. People in whatever country you're going to be working in, uh, let's say it's uh, France or something, you know, a, a total ally in every other sense other than the fact that they spy on us and we spy on them. Uh, <laughs> other than that minor detail. Um, we, uh, if we have, you know, we're going to help you in the country. Oh, except for sometimes we're going to withdraw and you're, all your people are going to get exposed. I mean, that's that's going to be a really tough pill to swallow. It's like, well, what happened the last time and the time before that? Like your embassies kept getting overrun. Um, it, it seems like that's a really bad precedence to kind of leave out into the world where that's that's how we treat our, our friends and our allies. And that's that's what happens when we leave the country. Yeah, um, well, I think that's why it's uh, you see the. Biden's administration now trying to um, um, reassure allies uh, um, around the world, whether it's uh, staying the course in Ukraine, or whether it's uh, staying the course in uh, in East Asia, uh, that uh, whatever um, happened in Afghanistan, and it was certainly a disaster. Um, we are moving forward to uh, do everything, everything we can to strengthen, restore, whatever word you want to use there, credibility. Um, so um, I can go back uh, uh, to what almost 50 years ago, our withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it certainly had ripple effects as well, but... Um, did it mean that um, our standing in the international community was forever uh, tarnished irrevocably? I don't think so. I don't think it will be in this case either, uh, but it will take time uh, to, it seems to me, um, to uh, restore uh, sort of the, flexi- the, the, the credibility that was lost by the way that uh, withdrawal was handled. I have uh, rather unconventional beliefs about both Korea and Vietnam. I don't think they were losses. I think the ultimate mission of stifling the expansion of the communism was a success. It worked. It may not have been ideal. Uh, <laughs> you know, we probably could have come out with, you know, 
better cards after it was all uh, the deck had played out. But I think ultimately it was, it worked in our favor. And I think there's, there's a number of these conflicts that don't really on the surface look that elegant. Uh, I don't think we came out looking beautiful, but we, we did it. I mean, we did what we were designed, what the whole mission was. We actually did accomplish it. So it's hard for me to count Vietnam as a loss. Uh, personally, I think we probably did exactly what we needed to do. Just, you know, not great <laughs> on the way out the door. Um, but back to uh, Iran for a second. Um, I want to like throw this good nugget out there. Because Argo is such a kind of compelling movie in, in many ways, it's a well-done movie, uh, some minor technical issues aside, um, it has been printed approximately hundreds of thousands of times and spread around inside of Iran. Hmm. Uh, it is now one of the most watched inside movies inside of Iran. Um, and it might even be possible that this is part of some of the current protests that are going on inside of Iran today. Um, they're, they're starting to sort of see this as going, well, maybe we should, kind of go back to these sort of Western ideals and maybe we shouldn't have to, you know, get beat up if we don't wear the right head scarves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So does that give you any kind of comfort that maybe this is kind of turning around and somehow getting back to the status quo the way you guys remembered it in the seventies? I did. I was happy to see that people were uh, able, but well, one week I read that women could, if their if their chador if their shawl fell off in the restaurant, it used to be that the waiter would rush over and tell them to put it back on, and then apparently that had stopped for a while. But now apparently they are sending the religious police back out again. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But I I I, I wish that they would have so a freedom of movement and everything. I mean, when you look at Iran and Afghanistan and you see what women are having to contend with. Um, you just wonder how they wake up every morning and and carry on, but they do. I think it's going to be um, a lengthy process of process of change uh, in uh, in Iran. Um, although I haven't followed it closely, my, my sense is that the uh, the protests of uh, of past months uh, led to, led by women. Uh, some thought at the time that this marked a real turning point um, in terms of um, the uh, liberalizing reforms. Uh, but um, of late, uh, again, I don't follow it closely, but I don't, I'm not aware that there are any signs that um, there's uh, any sort of momentum that's been maintained that you have the reassertion of Kathleen mentioning about the restoring of the morality police. Um, you ha- you don't have, a, uh, at least I don't see any, any sense that uh, there are any cracks in the, um, in the regime that would uh, indicate that uh, uh, maybe there is uh, a growing movement, a uh, significant movement to uh, modify, uh, much less uh, overthrow the, the regime. So... Um, Seems to me it's a long, hard process uh, uh, ahead, um, and when and how it might uh, bear uh, real fruit uh, remains unknown. Mm. Any lessons learned that you would kind of impart for the uh, 
sort of next foreign officers going into this thing or the diplomats who are sort of designing these policies and whether we shouldn't be harboring uh, people who fly their meals on Concords uh, from France to have them like the uh, Shah did. Uh, I mean, what anything you'd sort of wish we had done differently or we should do differently in the future? Wow. That's uh, um, a, a good question. I think uh, um, the uh, uh, t- very, very tough one. I think it's um, a, a key point I would make is that um, in these ever turbulent times, um, security of, uh, of, of personnel, security, uh, if you work in an embassy, if you work in a consulate, or in a U.S. mission, official U.S. mission, is, is, uh, it's got to be a priority. But it does not... Um, rule out the need to uh, get out among uh, the society, operate within the society, get a sense of what uh, what people at different levels are thinking. That's not always easy to do uh, because you may mean you go into risky areas, you put yourself in risky circumstances, but it's essential, uh, I think, that uh, uh, if you're operating overseas to... Uh, a diplomatic uh, uh, role in particular to do everything you can uh, to get a sense, get a pulse, uh, take the pulse of the community. Again, it's uh, in certain places, certainly it's ever more complicated because of security issues uh, involved, but it uh, remains, uh, remains essential. Kind of reminds me of when I see translation services. I know this is kind of a weird analogy, but when I see people translating to a language, it's almost always horrible. But if they're translating from a language into their own language, it's amazing. So if you don't have the boots on the ground, this is the kind of a weak analogy, but you get my drift. If you don't have the boots on the ground of the people who actually have a pulse of what's happening, you're trying to translate to, to the, the culture as opposed to getting it translated to you. You know what I mean? Um, you need it. You need it kind of originating from them, not, like, hey, I saw a guy walking on the street and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but you don't have all the cultural nuance for why that's important or not important or whatever. Um, he he crossed his leg in this one particular way. Does that mean anything? Maybe not. Maybe definitely. It just depends on the culture, right? So um, I think having more human int, uh, human assets in the ground is definitely um, a major win uh, for the United States if we can manage it. So. Yeah, yeah. And um I would note, for example, that uh, the uh, I understand that the Chinese, for example, now have more diplomatic missions than we do. Um, that um, that's kind of concerning uh, because I uh, think, our, for the reasons you mentioned, their diplomatic presence, official presence overseas, is is vital. Uh, presence with people who grasp the nuance um, or willing to go out and uh, do what they can to understand uh, the, uh, uh, the local society. Uh, government government contacts, of course, is vital, but also at the other levels as well. So, um, yeah, diplomatic presence is, uh, is essential. Boots on the ground, as you put it, mm-hmm. is vital. So what is next for the Staffords? What are you, uh, you going to do next? You have lived a very full life. 
<laughs> so what uh, what's it going to look like? Well, there never was enough time to paint. Mm. <laughs> so I was still mm. painting. And I have three great groups here in Austin that I work with, the Waterloo Watercolor Society and the Capital Arts Society and B-Cave Arts Foundation. Mm-hmm. And right now with B-Cave, we're going back to Italy in September where we are working with the sister city of Paestum, Italy, south of Naples. And they have built a monument to the Allied soldiers, many of whom were from Camp Mabry. Mm-hmm. And they're uh, dedicating that monument uh, in September. So we'll go back for that. We were there last year as at, at the invitation of the city of Paestum. We had a little art contest and wasn't really an art contest, and I met the most fantastic people in Bee Cave, some other artists who are now my dear buddies. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been great for me because generally I did not have a group of artists. I would have, there would be one or two local artists and things like that. So this has been wonderful. And so I'm just thoroughly enjoying all the painting and um, having exhibitions, and I have one now at Chazy. Oh, that's great. I did Sharon, not know that. With Sharon That's right Watkins. down the road. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, you're right. And dessert's yes. wonderful there, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how do people find your art or get in contact with you? or what's? Well, there, there's about 20 paintings up there right now, and okay. then um, some of them will leave. But that is uh, Kathleen-Stafford.com. Great. Or they can email me or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if you want your email with these degenerates who listen to this podcast. But <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Better to go to my website. Huh? <laughs> Definitely. And you, sir? Well, um, I've shifted my uh, interest to uh, China these days. So I'm studying Chinese, uh, reading up on uh, Chinese uh, history mm-hmm. and hope that uh, Kathleen and I next year can make a trip to China, and then I can use the Chinese that uh, to communicate that I'm studying right now. Oh, really? Yeah. He's already intermediate. Wow, that's amazing. It you is just, amazing. Did you just pick up languages easily? Well, I would say easily, but I enjoy uh, learning them and using them, so mm-hmm. that uh, helps. Italian, French, Arabic, Farsi, Portuguese. Portuguese, huh? Portuguese. Well, that's, I know that's just... When he when he arrives, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just enough eroded. to order a taxi and get some meals. <laughs> and say thank you. <laughs> and say thank you. Of course, thank you. Please, yes, gotta have your manners. Well, Kathy, Kathleen, and Joe, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, and uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. It's been lovely. Thank yes. you very yeah, much. Thank you. Thank you. Love to hear about your trip to China. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.